There's something extraordinarily wonderful about the Christian faith. It's not just true. It is the case that with the coming of Christ, with his death, his resurrection, then his ascension to the right hand of the Father, something new was birthed into our world that hadn't been there before. Something that you could not see in any other religion that began with that final conquest of Jesus, a new force, a new power that came into our world for good, a power that brought life, uh, brought life for humans with God, brought life though just in the power to transform a person and change a person. Um, God has come back to his world and in the person of Jesus he's rescued it and, and what Jesus brought shows that it was a rescue and not just another new thing but something profound and deep. Now I say this particularly because, um, well it relates to the passage we're looking at of course, but I say it too because we're in the middle of a battle at the moment uh, around the Christian faith in our community and there are many who are suggesting, insisting actually that we would be much better off as a society if we could just get rid of religion in general and Christianity in particular, that uh, we'd be much better if there was no heaven above, no hell below. and it is, uh, it is pushing and, and prodding around this question of religion being something that's destructive and not helpful. We're better off without it. Can I urge you, please, not to be taken in, to reflect with great care on that kind of um, suggestion, that kind of insistent view. In part, the argument fails because it lumps all religions together. Uh, religion can't be treated as a category simply in the same way that, um, let's call it governance, Governance can't be treated as a category, as if you can say governance is good or governance is bad as a category because some forms of government are good, some forms are bad. You can't just say governance is good or bad. You need to be more particular. Same with religion. You can't just lump all religion together and say religion is bad. Some are destructive. But you need to look at each particular because the Christian faith stands unique amongst the religions in that it brings a a good into our lives, a power for good that's not seen in any other religion. And that's what I'm wanting to take us towards this morning. And uh, particularly I want to pick up for you how this morning helps us see again that what Jesus brings is good. Let me summarise what he brings. Two big truths that Jesus brings with the music behind it as we go. Two two big truths that Jesus brings into our world when he arrives. The first one is that he is Lord. He comes with this declaration, effectively, that the king has returned to the planet to call on humanity back under his lordship. Uh, You might remember his first public words, repent. Uh, God is the ruler, he's the king of kings, and the Lord Jesus comes to establish his kingdom. He is Lord. But the second thing that he brings is forgiveness. Forgiveness. At the very heart of his message, his actions, the message of the first followers of Christ, forgiveness. The beauty, the greatness, the goodness of the gospel message is that it brings us back in touch with God who is king via the means of forgiveness. The early Christians, when they preached, uh, this was the the nature of their message repeatedly. In fact, look at Acts chapter 2. Come and grab your Bibles. Let's do a bit of this now. Acts chapter 2. 
what you might call the first Christian sermon. It's kind of might be a misnomer, but at the very beginning of the Christian journey, when the Lord Jesus has conquered through his death and his resurrection, has now ascended to the right hand of the Father, the first message that's preached after that event is by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. And the, and the boil his message down, it's two things. Jesus is Lord. He's the resurrected one. He's the one who proves himself to be the Psalm 16, Psalm 110 man. He's that one. He's the king. And look at verse 38. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent, come under his lordship, and find forgiveness. The very heart of the Christian proclamation is the, is the necessity of being reconciled to God as, as king, but the possibility of reconciliation through forgiveness. This message is repeated again and again. Chapter 3, you see it again, a great miracle has occurred and a bunch of people have been drawn together. In verse 19, uh, repent then, same message, come back under the Lordship of God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that forgiveness might come. You get it again in Acts chapter 5, you get it again in Acts chapter 10, you get it again in Acts chapter 20, all the way through 28, you get all the way through the book of Acts, this repeated message, Jesus is Lord, be forgiven, find forgiveness. Sorry. <laughs> we'll come to that actually later, forgiveness, we'll... <laughs> We'll talk about how it works. But uh, that's beautiful. Thank you. What I want to draw attention to, though, with this message of forgiveness is something even deeper, something that flows from it, is that the forgiveness that comes brings a power in itself, a power to transform the one who's forgiven and actually bring people to life and transform them so that they themselves become people of mercy, grace, compassion patience, love, forgiveness, which, when lived out, brings people together. It builds health. The Christian faith is one of the most powerful forces for good in our world, when understood rightly and lived out. Now, I offer all of this because, as I say, the section of Scripture we're looking at, Matthew chapter 18, uh, reflects deeply and heavily on the issue of forgiveness. It is part of a larger chunk of teaching that Jesus gives through this section. If you're not unaware, Matthew's Gospel has five big chunks of teaching from Jesus and we're now in one of those in Matthew chapter 18. And he gives in this context or, or lays the foundations for this truth of forgiveness and its power to change. So let me take you through this and then, here's my joke, we're going to take you through this passage, look at the power of forgiveness and offer some pastoral reflections on you, me, our life of forgiveness. So let's journey together through this. Verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, Peter's question has this, uh, you know, they've just had this issue of dealing with sin in the church and uh, we are to um, uh, bring someone to the point of repentance, let's say, and therefore, though, there's the possibility of forgiveness that comes. Well, Peter says, how often? Now, he's speaking these words in the context of a Jewish culture that had specified three times that if someone does it and then does it again and then does it again, the next time you stop, you forgive so far and no further. Peter comes with this sense of, 
Um, you know, I want to suggest I'm better than that, up to seven times. But look at Jesus' answer, verse 22. I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times, seven times. It's hard to translate that idea. But what Jesus brings is not a limit, but a rhetorical way of expanding the concept. So he doesn't mean, if it's 70, he doesn't mean 70 and not 71, or if it's seven times, he doesn't mean 490, but not 491. He means repeatedly, again, as a pattern, over and over again, you bring forgiveness. It's an extraordinary statement. And then he brings a story. Uh, Verse 23, he gives a story about a king and his expression of forgiveness towards a servant and the servant's expression of forgiveness to another servant. It's a story that's not true, but it actually builds the point that he wants to make and deepens the concepts. So don't get caught up on many of the details. It is a very simple story, but it is so important. I want to take some care just to notice a few things. I won't go through every detail. I trust that you've picked up the message. It's the message of a king who is owed a debt and he forgives the debt but the one who's been forgiven the servant who's been forgiven fails to forgive a smaller debt and so the king then punishes that's the simple story but just notice a couple of details to pick up a little bit more with it verse 23 therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants just notice firstly the story that Jesus speaks about offers is a way of gaining insight into the kingdom of heaven. What he's doing here is teaching us what God's kingdom is like, what the king of heaven is like towards those in his kingdom, uh, towards those in the world, in a sense, ultimately. So it has a, though it's an untrue story, it's not a real story, it has, it's it's providing a picture for us of something that is true and profound, the king. But then notice verse 26. At this the servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. So he's come before the king with a debt, a massive debt, 10,000 bags of gold, which you can see the footnotes and see the scale of that debt, a huge debt, and uh, he was unable to pay it and so on, and the, order, the, the master had settled accounts and had ordered him to pay for it, but he falls down on his knees and says, be patient with me and give me time to repay everything. Now notice that because verse 27 becomes more vivid for you. The servant asks for patience to repay, but what does the master give him? Verse 27. He gives him far more than the servant ever asked for. He cancels the debt. He could have just given what was asked, but he gives much, much more. And it's worth noting that because it tells you something about the king. What features have to be true of the king for him to be able to do that? Give us your reflections. Generous, merciful, and rich. Yeah, I mean, you've got to have. A, you've got to be very wealthy to be able to just absorb the debt that is so massive. Do you see? And so, what you have is a very wealthy king, a very powerful king who can, who has the capacity to absorb the debt, and a king who 
has the heart, compassion, grace to choose to forgive it. Do you see those two features? Now, what is the kingdom of heaven like? The kingdom of heaven is like that. It is a kingdom that has God who is like that. It's a powerful little insight into the nature of the kingdom. You see it because the king gives far more than was ever offered. I'll give you another little observation that comes from that. It tells you something about the nature of forgiveness. The nature of forgiveness has at least two features. I'm going to come back to this in a moment. But the nature of forgiveness has at least two features. One of the features of forgiveness is that it it no longer treats the person who owes you something as they deserve. It, It cancels the debt. But something else... It absorbs the debt themselves. The one who forgives absorbs the debt, do you see? Something of the nature of forgiveness expressed here. Now the servant goes out and here it's important to note the care that Jesus takes to create a contrast. You look there with me at verse 29 and you compare it to verse 26 and it's exactly the same statement. So verse 26, the first servant asked, be patient with me and I'll pay the debt. Verse 29, his fellow servant, the second servant, fell on his knees before the first servant and said, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. Same, same. Now Jesus does that but expressly to make sure that verse 30 has the vivid contrast. In contrast to the king, the first servant refuses and instead went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now others heard about this, reported it back to the master, and the last thing I want you to notice there is verse 32 and 34. The master calls the first servant wicked, and verse 34 hands him over to the jailers to be tortured. He doesn't just hand him over to the jailers now to pay back the debt, He hands him over to the jailers to be punished, to be tortured, to have a retributive justice expression here, not just a gain back. And that's important because what Jesus is drawing attention to is the the first servant who had his debt, massive debt forgiven, when confronted with a far smaller debt, though significant, it's not an insignificant debt, but a far smaller debt, his failure to bring grace to that is an expression of wickedness. And the master, the king, punishes him, judges him for it. Now, there is the story. What's the point of it? Well, there's a number of points. The primary one is the experience of forgiveness ought to change the person who has been forgiven. There's the primary point. But before it teaches that, and I'll come back to that in a moment... But before it teaches that, it assumes something far deeper, that there is a king like this king in reality, there is a king who will one day call to account to settle things. And further, there is a world that owes such a debt before that king that it cannot pay. The assumption here is, in reality, that there is a God before whom all of us are living in crushing debt. Jesus comes saying, repent, turn back. 
Repent, turn back, because we've been living in rebellion, rejecting the God who has made us and given us life, breath and everything. We have amassed a debt by our rebellion, by our rejecting Him, ignoring Him. We've fueled His just and holy anger towards us. But at the heart of the Christian message, the heart of the work of Jesus, is this work of forgiveness to any and all who would repent. Now, it doesn't come cheaply. God is the great King who can forgive, but it costs Him the life of His Son. Reflecting on these pieces of the story are profoundly important to actually appreciate the main point, to appreciate the immensity of the debt and the power of forgiveness is critical. Now, I think we find that hard. I think we, we, we live amongst a people who are unclean and we're unclean and so we don't notice each other, we get used to each other. It's the difference between the hand and the eye. Um, I think I've shared this before, but when there's a piece of dirt on your hand, you know, you don't notice it, you might see it, you want to clean it. But when there's that same speck of dirt in the eye, you feel it intensely. Living amongst us with sin, we don't notice it. But when you come before the holy God, the one who is pure, whose eyes are too pure to look upon sin, we will see vividly the debt that we owe. You know, there's a challenge here for us and I want to suggest too, one of the key ways of helping us appreciate that debt is to look at the solution that God gave for it, the cross. Many of us came to Christian faith through recognising there was a a problem in our lives, Uh, we realised our lives weren't measuring up, we couldn't make it before God, we couldn't keep the... These things drove us to look for a saviour. But the Christian faith doesn't always come that way to people. We've gone from problem to solution. But the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, for instance, went from solution to problem. And this might help us. That is to say... In Philippians chapter 3, he said he was righteous, more righteous than anyone. He didn't have a, set of, a sense of anxiety about his life before God, that he had a debt. He, was, he thought he would be fine before God. It was only when he reflected on the death of Jesus on the cross, when he realised that it took the death of God's only Son to, to save him, that he realised his sin must be far deeper and more profound than he ever imagined. He went from solution to realising the plight. Now, for many of us, that might be the necessary path. We've lived so long, we've thought so little, it's actually the reflection on the cross and the Garden of Gethsemane and what Jesus had to go through to make it possible for you to be forgiven that might bring some sense of the debt and the the magnitude of it, the the horror of it, how much we owe. This, This appreciation that when Jesus thought about bearing your sin my sin on himself, it almost crushed him in the garden. Father, please take this cup from me of Andrew Heard's sin. That he had to drink that, killed him. Appreciating that gives you some sense of the debt we owe. And so that we are forgiven is an astonishing message. Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This came at such a cost. Those first preachers preached the Lordship of Jesus, repent for the forgiveness of sins. 
Your only hope to be reconciled is through this path. Now, that is an astonishing message and it's unique among all the religions. It's not just one religion among many. But there's the background to the story. The heart of the story is that the message of forgiveness, when received, has the power to transform the life that experiences forgiveness. It has the power to create a person who is forgiving of others. And it's a necessary power. Jesus', Jesus is very point there at the end of the chapter, verse 35, um, is that this is a necessary thing for those who have experienced forgiveness, that we be those that forgive from the heart our brother and sister. There's the passage. Now let me apply it more specifically. And let's get down to details. I want to take you into some pain and I want to um, offer a caution in this because I'm going to ask you to think about an occasion where you've been wronged. Now for some of you, I'd encourage you not to go too deeply with that. Uh, Some of the hurt that you carry has very deep roots. But can I invite you to consider an occasion where someone has wronged you, you've been hurt, you've been injured, you might be sitting next to the person who did it. Now, some of you laugh, but others of you are going, yeah. Now, think on that pain. What do you do with it? What do you do with that sense of hurt and anger, that sense of outrage, injustice, sense of bitterness that emerges as you think on it, sense of hostility towards the person now? What do you do with it? What the world says to do with it is take vengeance. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, it doesn't use the word vengeance. It used lots of other ways around about saying, um, stand up for yourself, um, be assertive and strong, don't let anyone put you... It uses all kinds of language which, when you strip it back, you realise is actually about taking revenge, getting back. Now, it is right to be assertive. There are places and appropriate times where you do need to be assertive. The Lord Jesus, who taught us to be meek, was the one who actually stood up on occasions when it was right and appropriate. But you have these hurts. The world's message is one thing. What ought we do with them? Well, it depends. It depends. There is some complexity here that I want to draw your attention to. Keep your finger there in Matthew 18 and come across to Luke 17. Look at verse 3. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now you think with me about that verse, passage, and the Matthew chapter 18 one, there's a significant difference between the two passages. Now, I don't pretend that you're all 
super alert at this time in the morning and so on, but uh, some of you might be. Can you pick the difference between the two passages? In Luke 17, forgive them if they repent. Forgive them if they repent. There's a condition on your forgiveness of them. But in Matthew 18, there's no, indi- there's no explicit expression of repentance. It might be there suggested in the earlier section, verse 15 to 20, if they listen to you, won them over. There might be a hint there of forgiveness, of repentance, that means that's occurred so that, repentance can fo- so that forgiveness can follow. But by the time you get down to the story, there's no clear indication of any condition that needs to be met before you forgive from the heart. And this is of a piece with earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. Come back with me to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5... Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall... Oh, not that part, though it's a good verse to read. Um, Verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? You have this expression, and you get it in Luke chapter 6, bless those who curse you, pray for them, do good. You get this expression that we are to act towards others in ways that they don't deserve for their good, graciously, without reference to them having repented. So how do you hold this together with Luke 17 where there is a condition? If they repent, you forgive. I want to offer how I hold it together and see if this is helpful. I think the way to hold it together is to recognise that forgiveness has a series of components to it. I'm going to offer four. Forgiveness is not just a single act. It's a series of things that you do. The first thing you do is that you choose to no longer treat a person as they deserve. You cancel their debt, do you see? You don't treat them as they deserve. Second, you absorb the cost yourself and deal with the bitterness and the hurt and the anger that you feel and process it to remove it so that you no longer carry bitterness towards the person. The third step is to now look for their good, to not just not be for them, but to now pray for them and seek their good. Now, I want to suggest that those first three parts of forgiveness are required whether someone repents or not. I'm going to suggest how that might be possible in a moment. But there's a fourth part to forgiveness that's only possible upon repentance. And that fourth part is reconciliation. Restoration of intimate relationship. And it's only upon repentance and understanding from the person of what they have done that reconciliation is actually possible. You might, without repentance, Look for their good, not act according to them as they deserve. 
deal with your own bitterness and, and process it and rid yourself of it by God's grace. You might do all of that, but without repentance and insight and understanding, reconciliation is never possible. But upon repentance, you can go the full form of forgiveness into reconciliation. But the nature of that reconciliation will vary in shape of the sin against you and the nature of repentance and understanding and so on. So there can be reconciliation, but perhaps not a full engagement back into intimacy of relationship and trust, because trust has been destroyed and that may never come back even with significant insight and understanding. And so there's a richness to the act of forgiveness that's important to appreciate, I offer. Now, how do you do that? How do you do the first three steps of forgiveness when there's no repentance? And how do I go to the fourth one even when there is repentance and I carry this hurt? How do I do this? I'm going to offer three steps. First step, drink deeply of the forgiveness you've received. It, <laughs> I'm saying this more strongly than I think it's true, but I want to say it strongly. It is impossible, or it ought to be impossible, to carry bitterness towards someone who has wronged you and at the same time Give thanks for the forgiveness that you've received from God at such a cost. It, it's imp- it ought to be... It, there is something deeply broken in a person who can at one time celebrate the forgiveness they've received at such a cost, of such magnitude, and yet harbour happily bitterness towards someone who's wronged them. And I might offer one of the powerful things about singing um, is that it's, it's partly as the gospel truths are put to music that that experience of the, the, the music touching my heart with the words of the gospel, that I celebrate the goodness of God, that your heart processes the wonder of forgiveness in a way that should help you Reflect on the way others have treated you and what you're doing with them. Drink deeply of the forgiveness you've received. That's the point of this story. There's a power to forgiveness that actually takes on a life in your life and it multiplies itself so that you grow to be a person of compassion because you've received such compassion. You grow to be a person of forgiveness and mercy and grace because you've received such mercy and grace. It's God's gift to us, the Master. And it matters that you do this. It matters because if you have received such a grace, it will in some fashion show itself in the fruits of that experience. And one of the key fruits of that forgiveness that you've received is that you grow to be a person of forgiveness towards others. Jesus is not saying in verse 35 that one of the works that you must do to earn your salvation is the forgiveness of others. No, no, no. He's suggesting that one of the evidences that you've experienced the mercy of God and understood the mercy of God is that you will become a person who is full of grace towards others. First step, reflect deeply on the mercy of God towards you. 
Second and third, more quickly, the second one is entrust yourself to God, entrust your wrong and hurt to Him who will right all things. I know many of your stories that you've experienced pain that only the Lord can set right and one day you can be assured that it's not yours to take vengeance, it's the Lord who will bring judgment in appropriate ways. And so you can release it knowing that God will deal with it. It's a great freedom. I'll give you the third step. Realise you have a need to forgive others for your own health. I get this in the Sermon on the Mount with where Jesus talks about anxiety. He says that carrying anxiety won't help you, won't add an hour to your life, why keep hold of it? Bitterness towards those that have hurt you won't add an hour to your life. It'll eat you up. Let go of it. Three things. Drink deeply of the grace of God yourself to grow in compassion and mercy. Bring patience towards others. Entrust yourself to God and His judgments. And see the importance for your own health and well-being that you let go of bitterness. And I would urge you, in letting go of bitterness, that you deal with the bitterness. Now, here's some observations that actually are not biblical. I don't think they're wrong, but they have a different weight to them, so take them with a grain of salt. I want to suggest to you, uh, others have talked to me about this over the years, that um, forgiveness from the heart is genuinely only possible when you have owned the anger and hurt that you feel towards the person who's wronged you. There is a kind of God-given gift where you can choose to forgive and in a moment He releases you with the ability to truly forgive. There is a God-given gift that sometimes comes. But true forgiveness is rarely in a moment. There is a God-given gift that in a moment you can truly forgive. But I've found over the years that momentarily, that moment forgiveness is rarely true forgiveness. It most often requires a genuine engagement with the pain, an embracing of the hurt, facing the anger and hostility and bitterness that you're carrying, living it, processing it and dealing with it by God's grace. Too many times in Christian circles there is this expectation that I should be able to just pray and do it and it'll all be okay and many people end up living the lie of I've just done that and it's all okay. I think you'll find that many of those who have that experience are still harbouring angers and resentments. Now what I'm talking about here again is related to certainly the first three levels of forgiveness where there's no repentance and I'm talking about the fourth layer of reconciliation that only comes upon repentance. But what I want you to notice is there is no obligation to reconcile fully and completely with someone who has wronged you without repentance. And I think this is very important for us in a context where we are heightened, have a greater awareness of childhood abuses, marriage abuse, in these contexts, I want, to, I want to empower you to realise that I don't think the Scriptures God is calling you to enter back into an intimacy where there's no repentance and understanding and insight. I think it is appropriate to hold some 
boundaries for yourself in that, for their good, as well as sometimes your own safety. Now, in all of this, I want to offer it does matter. If you have received grace, pray God to have the transforming strength to be gracious. But I want to offer this final thought too before I actually see if there's any questions. We've got a couple of minutes to questions. Sometimes all you can do in your pain is plant the seed of forgiveness, not offer the full flower yet. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes it's not possible to give that full expression of forgiveness to someone who has hurt you so badly. But what you can do by God's grace is plant the seed that one day will grow to be that. And I'd encourage you today to plant that seed, to actively think about those around you in your life, whether there are hurts you're living with, whether there's bitterness and anger you're harbouring, and to perhaps today by God's strength to plant the seed of a new way of relating of a forgiveness, of a letting go of the bitterness, of treating people as they don't deserve and perhaps even upon repentance, bringing genuine and deep reconciliation. What a beautiful power God has given us through the gospel of grace. Let me pause there though. Do you want to ask any questions? Because this is a very massive topic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Verse 35, so from the heart. Is it the heart part or unless you do this part? Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, thank you, yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay, it's the, um, this is how the Father will treat. Uh, verse 35, I think what, the, what, what Jesus is alerting us to is that evidence that you are unforgiven is that you don't forgive. And so, in a vivid way, the story is portraying a person who actually has never experienced forgiveness at all. They're actually a person who is not reconciled to God, still under his condemnation, is what it's saying there. It's not suggesting, it's not suggesting that you can be a saved person experiencing the forgiveness of God and slip up in one area and be lost. God, you are saved by grace and grace alone, but grace is never alone, it will show itself in fruits But if there's one fruit that you're struggling to produce by the grace of God in your life, you won't be condemned if the evidences of you receiving grace are so many and varied in your life. That one struggle is not the key to your loss, do you see? Um, No, no, no. If there's sufficient evidence of His grace in your life, but there's one area I'm struggling with, pray for the strength, plant the seed and move forward. There were some other hands I saw. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, Lynn, we've got a, somewhere the microphone. We'll sorry, go with the microphone. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, for some of us, Andrew, the reality of these, these verses, the reality for a lot of us is that uh, grace and forgiveness for a lot of us can be a process that we don't have, to, we don't need to act on it immediately. For some, they can, but for others, Christ allows us through that grace to go through that process of forgiveness. Yes, amen. I think I'm offering plant the seed and recognise it. It may well. It, it's very often actually that the deeper the hurt, it's very often a process and a journey. 
where dealing with the pain is necessary, you don't just brush it aside, where you make a choice to act for the good of the other and you seek their understanding and insight to bring about repentance, that there might be the possibility of reconciliation genuinely and deeply. Now, in many marriages, you know, marriages live in a spectrum, there are deeply dysfunctional problems and, you know, we need to speak into that in one particular context. But for many, the hurts and pains that you experience are the are the cut and thrust of daily life and the, the grievances and the he said, she said. It's not the issue of domestic violence so much, it's other things going on. In all of that, when you, when you grasp the grace you've been given, you won't always pursue someone having to repent of everything they've done. Do you see? Often in those contexts, what's necessary is patience, compassion, Love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, as they go in seriousness, you'll need to work a process of raising and talking through so that someone understands what's happened to me and what they've done and there can be repentance and you see what I'm offering here. But recognising that is an important thing in the dynamic of our lives together. Now, Lynn, I'm sorry, I cut you off. I think you might have just answered that. It's where you, you have... Thank you. You've done the first three steps of forgiveness... And it's worked so well that as time's gone by, your relationship's been restored, yeah. but they've never, um, you've never brought it up and they haven't repented, but now you seem to be reconciled. Do yep. you have to go back and dig it up to get them to repent and so that you can be more reconciled? Um, just thinking about how much I'll share about my life right at this point. <laughs> um, I think my wife has been extraordinarily patient with me, realising I wouldn't understand the things I'm doing at every point in our lives, and so she's born with it, allowed me on my journey to grow in insight so that I might, oh, I've been doing that, I had no idea for 10 years. Um, oh, I'm sorry, it's no big deal, is it, that I've been doing that for 10 No, no, but what I'm saying is, there is a journey as you grow together and you be patient with one another and bring the compassion of Christ into your life, into the lives of others. And so I, I understand, I realise you won't see everything yet and I'm not going to throw it on you all yet, but over time you pray that the Lord works in someone's life to give them insight and understanding and deepening reconciliation. Yeah. That's probably more relevant when they're not a Christian. No. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you're right. But no, I want to make the point, it's true of, ma- it's true of Christian marriage as well. We're all, we're all works in progress. And the ability to see what I bring to relationships, you know, is impeded by all kinds of baggage and history. And, and you can't relate to each other insisting that you see everything you've done and have it all sorted out. You can't relate to each other like that. We live in a world of sin. Um, but as the things get bigger... And there is hurt that actually impedes my relationship with you. Out of love, I will raise it. Yeah, but do it in love. One of the things, let me finish, I'm going to rave too long otherwise. The, um, please can I offer this, that we're living in a time in history where the elites have started to cast the whole shape of relationship through the lens of power. All relationships in the last 10 years are being read through the paradigm, the lens of power. 
Who's got the power? Who hasn't got the power? How we could get the, rid, of, rid of the power from the powerful, give it to the powerless, and then we'll actually have a... No, 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 no. The lens that we need to read life through is love. There are power inequalities. There always will be. People, all kinds of different reasons for that. But when you bring a Christian lens of love, compassion, grace and mercy to it, I'll work to... I'll work not to recast the power but I'll work to use what power I have to love the other for their good and our good together. Deeply important way of reframing our lives by the grace and compassion of God because here's the big thing, we have been loved by God, we have been forgiven by the King of the universe, we have had a debt cancelled that is beyond your comprehension and it'll only be in glory that you realise how big that debt was but you've been treated with grace and mercy. Oh, drink deeply of that and let that grow in your life as a power to show mercy to others. If you've not experienced that grace and mercy, love to talk to you. Find it in Christ today, repent. But if you have, let it shape you.